Hi, welcome to More to Come, PW's podcast of the comics and graphic novel publishing world. My name is Heidi McDonald. I am the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com, occasional graphic novels review editor for PW and co-host of this podcast. Uh, Check us out on social media at at PWComicsWorld on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Facebook. Um, Today we are recording from various locations. I am pleased to be joined by Dan Garino, the author of Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks Who Gave Us a New Geek Culture. Um, It's a book that's just out this month, I believe, from uh, Swallow Book Press, which is part of Ohio University Press, correct? That's correct. All right. So, um, So, Dan, this is uh, nothing less than kind of a history of the direct sales market from its early glimmerings from the protean days of the legendary Phil Suling, uh, uh, coupled with uh, profiles of some of today's uh, best-known comic shops. So really, it's 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 a snapshot of retail and comics uh, that I've never really seen put together quite in this way. What on earth inspired you to write about this? Well, I would say that the there there was a combination of things that I found really intriguing. Um, within this book, you can kind of see there's this there's this thread about the history of of comic shops in the direct market, and then there's also this this thread about comic shops today and um, just comics, the kind of the art form of comics, and and who the readers are and who um, and this this ebb and flow of the market right now. And I found that those two things were, were so deeply interrelated. It was like there were separate stories, but they were kind of, they were kind of the same story in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I found myself, and also I noticed that there, I couldn't find, I couldn't find a book out there that was about the history of, of, of comic shops in the direct market. And I also couldn't find, a good kind of I don't know travel log or exploration of the dynamics of comic shops today. Um, it seemed like there was this kind of, um, and I guess not be, being a, a first-time author, I've been a reporter for I think 16 years now. But um, but this is the first book I've written. Um, part of me was just thinking I I want to I want to kind of I want to kind of do everything uh, um, in. Uh, um, and try to fold those two things together, and, right. and and this is the result. Right, right. Well, you know, just in the spirit of disclosure, I will say I do have a blurb on the back of the book because um, I did review it in an earlier form. Uh, this is, I say, this is essential reading for anyone who wants to understand comics in the United States. Garino has put together a riveting account of the history of the comics market and even reveals the forgotten key women who were instrumental to its creation. I said, Comic Shop is a page-turner. Well, I will say, for me, it was a page-turner because, like you said, you know, nobody's really ever written about this. Now, there's lots of old fanzine interviews and that kind of thing where you can kind of piece it together, but you went and you found... Uh, like pretty much all the the living key players, right? I I found um, lots of people who are still in the business mm-hmm. uh, and connected to the business, and I found lots of people who are long separated from the business. So it was, and um, it, and I found that a lot of the people who are not active in the business anymore, you know, who haven't mm-hmm. been to a convention in decades. Those were some of the most eye-opening interviews in a lot of ways because 
they it isn't like in their social group or in um, they their involvement in comics has any currency to them anymore. Right. So they could just right. kind of tell me what happened. And um, and then there was this nice mix um, in having a lot of kind of the, the survivors, mm. the, the the people like um, like Chuck Rosansky and Bud Plant and others who who um, still make a living in comics and. It's just incredible when you realize the degree of difficulty of these businesses that somebody could put together a decades-long career like some of these guys have. Um, yeah, and, and you know, what's interesting, I've always said that comics have have an incredible sense of continuity. And, you know, this is so baked into the DNA of, obviously, the whole superhero thing. But you're absolutely right. You know, this, like people like Chuck Rosansky, Bud Plant, you know, Milton Greep, um... Uh, you know, Steve Jeppy. I mean, all of these people go back a long way. You know, this is not something that they were, um, you know, like. I mean, they've been at it. They, they've been at it a long time. They've seen a lot of change. And I think what's really interesting about the the book is that you do cover some of the key, um, you know, moments of this this history. And and I've seen a lot. Of people, you know, write about the direct market, and and obviously Diamond's monopoly is quite problematic. But but I think understanding how that happened is really interesting. Um, so you know, let's talk a little bit about Phil Suling because this is mm-hmm. you might see his name thrown around. You might say the father of the direct sales market. But um, you know, what did you find out about him? And I mean, who was he? For people who have never heard of Phil Suling, who was he? Well, I, I would I would start by saying that. Phil Suling was somebody, if he was a fictional character, you would say he was unrealistic. <laughs> um, he was, he was uh, a, a New York City public school teacher, an English teacher, uh, taught high school. Um, but he also was this, you know, it's a cliche, but he was a force of nature. Mm-hmm. He, he was this, um, he was someone who got into comics collecting um a little bit ahead of the curve where he was picking up golden age comics before people really realized how valuable they were. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was just kind of an obsessive, you know, where he, 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 he had this love of comics from when he was a kid and it just became this, this, um, you know, this mission of his to go off to junk stores and garage sales and all over the place and find old comics. And he, and he amassed this, this great collection and then he would buy and sell them mm-hmm. and he got to know the other fans. And he was also this great kind of organizer and builder. Uh, if you look at some of the very early conventions, like, um, in the mid sixties where there's just a small room full of people, um, Phil is usually there. He mm-hmm. he was somebody who mm-hmm. knew everybody. Uh, right. and it's this, this kind of that kind of personality where um, he he might rub you the wrong way sometimes, but he was just you know he he got he got things together, he got people together, and he also m- helped to create this bridge between comics creators and the fans. His his um, conventions. He later was a convention operator starting in 1968, and he he, he helped to in many ways create and in many ways improve upon this template of a convention where you have these top creators that will meet fans and answer questions because at that time a lot of these creators did not have a sense of how beloved they were right um a lot of them 
just kind of like they just this was just a job and they uh, they didn't realize that there were these a lot of them were adult fans who grew up reading these guys work and um, and really wanted to meet them and it was Phil Suling uh, had the kind of the, the, the personality and the organizational wherewithal to um, create the space where they all could get together and that's all before the thing he did that is relevant to the direct market well, it, which, it, oh go on I'm sorry so so in in 1973 he starts another business. Uh, 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 he has a side business before that where he's buying and selling comics. He has a side business where he's running a big comic convention, probably the biggest comic convention, probably the biggest comic convention in the country for at least a couple of those years. Uh, and then in uh, 73, he starts a business where he acts as a middleman between the uh, the the main comics publishers, what we would call the code comics, like the um, DC, Marvel, Archie, etc., and um, he created this system where retailers could order in uh, specific quantities of specific titles, and they could get it drop shipped, directly shipped from the printer to the comic shop. And this was for this new kind of business. Comic shops existed at that point. Mm-hmm. A few of them did. But it was this innovation in distribution, which doesn't sound nearly as interesting when you say innovation <laughs> It was this real kind of light bulb moment, and it helped. Um, it, it really uh, helped provide this engine to create this network of comic shops that soon developed. Right now, how many about at this time? Like, let's say the early seventies. Like, fandom and conventions had sort of been organizing throughout the sixties, and you know, there's even a record. There's a famous New York Comic Con that had like three hundred guests or something, and and it had, there's a listing online that shows all the guests, and among the guests are both. Gary Groth, now publisher of Fantagraphics, and Paul Levitz, who was for a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, when you see the connections between these people going so far back, it really is extraordinary. But but uh, in the early 70s, when this was all happening, do you have any idea of how many comic shops there were in the United States? This gets at one of the central difficulties in, in uh, working on something like this, which is when you talk about how many comic shops there are, it depends completely on how you define comic shop because you can go back decades and find stores that had like, you know, a, a selection of old comics or, you know, you can find used bookstores that had, that had comics you can find. But as far as a comic specialty shop that would be recognizable to a present day audience Mm -hmm. it was a really really small number and i hear different numbers when i talk to different people but it would in 73 it would have definitely been fewer than 100 right and depending on how tightly you want to define it it might have been substantially fewer than 100 right well you know just to show my own age i um not only went to some of uh, phil suling's shows i mean later in the 70s but uh, he held like my own uh, exposure to to his cons was he had monthly monthly showcases in New York and these are where a lot of the whole New York fandom of the time kind of congregated I guess and I was probably the only girl I, that's not true there were other girls but sometimes I felt like the only girl I will say that and you know I'd try to, I try to I met Phil a few times but I was just you know this kid asking him if he wouldn't lower the price on this back issue of Master of Kung Fu. But um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I was I was growing up in this whole this whole milieu. Now there was something also like like Suling also kind of colored outside the lines too. I I mean he was he lost his job as a teacher because of some misconduct, correct? Well, he 
um, that whole episode um, is so he he didn't he didn't lose his job he so so he was arrested for um, and the, the allegation was that he was selling uh, inappropriate comics obscene comics to a minor mm-hmm. um, and um, I, I don't know if I don't think he was selling to a minor, but it was at one of his shows. He right. ended up going. He was in jail overnight. It was this big to do, um, but because of that, he was taken out of the classroom while his case was adjudicated. And it was during that immediate aftermath that he started his distribution business. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found um, was that a lot of the people who were in comics, who were in comics at the time, and who were in comics for a long time. They would describe this kind of cause and effect mm-hmm. of the uh, his arrest and then the start of the uh, distribution business, but and that struck me as that struck me as a as a little too pat um, because it you know just this idea of you know the um, you know the censors cracking down and and um, and you know Phil um, in response to this uh, injustice he ends up starting this business that helps to advance comics mm-hmm. in a way that's much bigger than, you know, it just seemed like it was a little bit too much of a cute narrative. Right. Um, and one thing I found is that when I talked to the people who were closest to him, his family, um, not comics business people necessarily, they say that he was looking to make comics his full-time job. He mm-hmm. wanted to find a way and he was looking to not be a teacher anymore. Um, and so he, he was never fired. He was taken out of the classroom and then he started his distribution business, and then he put in for early retirement. Right. Um, so, um, but yeah, so, but he 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 got in trouble with his job because of this. He also was this. You know, if you saw him, he was this. He was this big guy. His weight fluctuated a lot. He um, he had kind of very. You know, he had uh, he was this kind of ponytail guy in the early seventies. It was, he, and he was quite this imposing figure. He was someone who, you know, if he if he likes you. He's your, you know, the best friend in the world. But he also, you know, he could be an aggressive guy. Yeah. He could be um, prone to, to to anger. And um, so he was, yeah, he was, um, he was quite a character. And yeah, I mean, he definitely had a lot of charisma. I'll tell you that. I mean, I do remember him from, you know, back in the day. But I, I mean, he also uh, was dating one of his students, right? <laughs> well, okay, so he. He, so, so we're talking about um, Johnny Levis, who was the co-founder of his distribution company, and um, Johnny is someone he met because she was a student at his school, and okay. I believe he was in his class at one time. But um, as far as when they started dating, it was at some later point, um, and I'm not. I mean, I, 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 I don't. Um, I, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure of of the the timeline there but okay. she was, was it was some period like a year or more later um but she was still there was still a huge age difference i think right. she was 17 he was he would have been i don't i think he would have been in his 30s at that right. point so it's one of those things that and and she, it, it was one of those things in that circle that was um you know caused people to kind of have double takes and just wonder what you know this is that's well, that's interesting that that's going on. But <laughs> one of the things with 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 Johnny and, and Phil is that they um, they were business partners and they stuck together. They ended up um, and they were a they were a I guess a romantic couple until about 1978. So for they were together for I think five or six years, 
and she remained his business partner after they were no longer a romantic couple. Right. So their partnership was, you know, even though there was this big age difference that people at the time and people today would look at and just be kind of like, oh, that doesn't, that, that seems, something doesn't seem quite right there. It, there was this real, they, I mean, she, she felt a real, um, she felt a real affection and, right. and, um, and, and, and there was a real mutual respect there. Um, so it was one of those things, and as in writing about that aspect of Johnny and Phil, it was like I, one of the big questions I had is how do I deal with, to what extent do I dwell on their romantic relationship? Because uh, their business relationship was what mm-hmm. ended up really mattering in the business. And kind of what I chose to do is just kind of say, just say the romantic relationship existed mm-hmm. and let Johnny speak to the fact that that would have been kind of scandalous at the time. Uh, and what did she have to say about that? Right. And then just kind of kind of move on but it it was something i thought a lot about well i I, to me the revelation of the book was johnny levis i mean Mm -hmm. i uh definitely know a lot of the players from that time i spoke to them and you know i i might have even heard somebody might have been oh like you yeah like phil you dated one of his students or something which which you know i i which i've just repeated actually but um but she she based on your account like she really was his business partner i mean she was a very integral part of this whole of of Seagate distribution, I mean, she's she, you know, it sounds like she might have even you know been a little bit of the better business person. <laughs> well, it, it was, they, they had an an interesting dynamic. Um, she was someone who did in the early days of that business when they had essentially no employees. She did a ton of the grunt work. She mm-hmm. was the person. I mean, they both would be up all hours of the night. Um, doing paperwork and handling this giant task. You know, they were starting this business um, with no seed capital, with, um, you know, with, and, and she, she was this integral part of it. She also, the fact that Phil could be, um, she, she, she at times would be the person who would kind of smooth things over if Phil, mm-hmm. if Phil got upset with somebody or somebody got upset with Phil. She was um, at times the diplomat. Um, so in talking to like one of their, um, one of the people they worked with who later became a a distributor himself in his own company is named Ron Foreman. And he talks about, um, Johnny's being kind of the business brain of that, of that operation. And I don't think that quite gives, that doesn't quite give Phil enough credit because Phil had a heck of a business brain himself. But I, what I've said is that. In a lot of ways, it's remembered as if Phil was almost all of that business, and and it was. I, I don't think it's a fifty-fifty split in terms mm-hmm. of kind of the importance of each of them, but it was pretty close. It was, you know, it was. And Johnny kind of is. Um, you just because she's not in the business anymore, because she doesn't go to conventions, because she doesn't tell her own story. Mm-hmm. She, um, um, you just don't you you don't hear about her when you talk about the history well, of the business. And she's really important to the history. Of the business. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a classic forgotten woman, you know, and I mean, it's so symbolic <laughs> of so much in the history of this this business that you have, you know, this woman who's barely out of her teens, um, <laughs> you know, having a, a very integral part in setting up the system that would dominate the industry for thirty or more years, you know, so. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of teen whizzes in comics. I mean, uh, both both Gary Groth and Paul Levitz were publisher. I mean, Paul worked, for, you know, was writing comics when he was in his teens. Jim Shooter, famously. So, you know, Joe Kubert. I mean, there's there's kind of this really strange history of of you know teenage wunderkinds who are who are 
you know, storming the business. So, um, you know, that's another piece of the DNA. Um, what did, what was, uh, what was, uh, Johnny's reaction when you tracked her down? Well, I, um, so it took me a little while to, to, to get in touch. I think, um, I tried a couple different ways. I tried a couple of phone numbers just from doing searches of, um, like public record searches. And I ended up contacting her via Facebook. And I think, I believe that it was Jim Hanley or Bud Plant who I had interviewed previously. I don't, I don't remember if it was one or the other, but I asked them if they could send Johnny a note too. And just, just say that, um, cause I didn't know if any of my messages were getting through, mm. but eventually she responded to one of the Facebook messages and we had, I think we had, we had three long interviews and she was just great. And she, um, and I would say that she was indicative of the people who are not in the business anymore. And another one, um, or not kind of fully a part of the business anymore. And Mike Friedrich would be another one, um, where they just were so, they didn't, they didn't have any jobs that they had to worry about keeping, you know, they didn't have freelance assignments. They didn't have any friends they're going to hang out with at the next convention that they're concerned about offending. They just kind of, they just kind of told me what, you know, their recollections of what happened. So it was this really, um, I mean, I, it, it was great talking to her and, um, she was, yeah, she was super, super forthcoming. And one of, I mean, being able to talk to her, um, especially at the point at which I talked to her at that, at that point, I had talked to so many people who were close to Phil mm-hmm. and, but a lot of them were teenagers uh, like the, and, and fans, and they just really looked up to him, almost like a like a, um, he was this. They, they they had so much respect for him, and he died because he died when a lot of them were still fairly young. Um, it was it, I think that kind of colored the way they wanted to describe him. I felt like I wasn't getting a a, a, a multifaceted portrait kind of what he was really like. And the thing about the thing about Johnny and to and also Ron Foreman and the people who really knew him and his family. I ended up talking to a couple. I t- ended up talking to Phil's daughter. I ended up talking to Phil's um, his former wife, who um, he had divorced several years before he uh, before his relationship with. Yeah, with she she got with out Phil. of that crazy racket just in time. Uh, anyway, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> and she's also. I mean, she has her own. Uh. I, I talked to her very late in the process, um, and if I had talked to her earlier, and it's funny because. It, it was talking to Johnny that put me in touch with Phil's one of Phil's daughters who put me in touch with her mom, which is Phil's first wife. And Carol Suling was great. And mm-hmm. if I, if, if, if the timetable was a little different, I would have had more with her because she, she was a comics creator in her own right. She, uh, well, she was, she remains in touch with Roy Thomas. She's, um, but I, it was just a matter of kind of filling in bits at the very end with her. Yeah, no, she definitely, I know she did also have her, you know, own separate relationship with the comics. So, you know, she's another kind of forgotten woman. But, uh, yeah, and her daughter was uh, Gwen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Gwen was the one I interviewed. I interviewed Heather. Oh, um, uh, okay. I, I, met, I knew Gwen, but I never met Heather. So, anyway. Well, and, and Heather was, it's, it's funny sometimes when you have some, question about some basic fact that you're trying to nail down because you're hearing contradictory things and then you run into that interview where they tell you precisely the answer <laughs> and they tell you how and you ask how they know that and they say i know it because i was there and one of the questions with with um with heather was about kind of whether her dad had actually retired or what that was all about and she was like yeah he he retired i was there when he filed the papers i remember the conversation he had with the person who took his papers and it was like okay this is no longer 
in doubt. You know, yeah. I, I it's just, you don't get any better source than that. And she's also someone who's not at all connected to the comics business. So I, I there was no, you know, I just had absolute confidence that she, she, you know, she was telling me something that is reliable. Right, right. Uh, well, well, we have a little bit of a shorter episode here today. So um, one of the really cool things you're doing uh, is you have a supplemental website where you're kind of doing profiles or interviews with, uh, you know, retailers and 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 you're still kind of unearthing some of the forefathers or you know uh, ancestors I should say of the direct sales market um you know what what what's um you know what let me back up let me rephrase that question actually because in the back of the book you also have profiles of comic shops and you know what was that experience like i mean did you i imagine you called up did you visit all of them or did you did you just call them so i visited um it's funny the number of shops that i was going to feature um, part of the kind of the, the, the strategy for how I was going to do the reporting for this was that I was going to do short profiles of initially 10 shops mm-hmm. and that the reporting through in-person visits of those 10 shops um, was going to inform the kind of present day part of the book. And in and the, and the kind of the modern industry in the present day part of the book is actually more than half of the book. So the history stuff is actually less than half. Um, but um, it just kept growing. You know, I would get to a city like Portland and I would go to a store and they would say, Oh, you need to check out this other store. You know, you go to the Bay area, you can't just check out two stores in the Bay area. They're right. great. A bunch of them. You go to, you know, you go to New York, you go to Chicago and the list kept growing. And then I also had to include the beguiling in Toronto, which, um, this was before their relocation. I, I have yet to go to their new location, but that the beguiling, um, I feel like that's one of the best, if not the best shop I'd ever, uh-huh. ever been to. So I, you had to, and I didn't want to just include one Canadian shop. So it was like, um, it, what I ended up doing was, so I, I physically, you know, I was, I, I visited and interviewed in person people at the majority of the stores. Um, uh, for those I couldn't make it to physically, I talked to them on the phone, um, talked to them via email. But then I also, um, I had the help of a couple people who, um, who just are super familiar with comic shops to help kind of point out ones that are, I would, I would send around my list of the ones I had and I would say, who am I leaving off? That's really good. And, and some of the suggestions I got were stores I had never heard of, like, um, the dragon in Guelph, Ontario, which I think that's, I think that might be an, they might be an Eisner award. winner. Uh, I'm pretty sure they are actually. And yeah. yeah I, 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 I don't, never been to the store, but I know the owner, Jen and yeah, she's, she's dynamite, you know, so, I, so, I'm looking through just to kind of give an idea of the kind of shops that are in here. Like I, you have, you have it alphabetically, but like all yes in here, big planet challengers in Chicago, Comicopia, comics experience, um, alternate reality, mile high comics, source comics and games. I'm just flipping through the beguiling Chicago comics. I mean, you kind of have it broken down by even the genre of store so it's really it does i i think actually in the, that wasn't quite as clear in the first version of the book that i read but in this way you really do have kind of the tendrils of dna kind of laid out which is actually really interesting well and, and heidi you um you, looking at the differences between the first version of the book and this this version um i just i mean some some of the 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 feedback i got from readers was tremendously helpful and also it was just a matter of time too. i'm um, just having some more time to 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 um to have seen enough stores to be able to organize them better but one of the things i wanted to do was that the store profiles are organized in in terms of um just stores that are somewhat similar in their approach mm-hmm. um 
And just so it isn't like an alphabetical list or it isn't, there's, there is an alphabetical list in the back of the book, but the actual profiles themselves are organized. Um, you know, there are stores that are comics and game stores, for example. There are stores that are, um, I call them all of the above stores, which is just kind of this catch-all kind of store. Um, and I think that that, I mean, that's a really important part of the book because one of the things that I, I'm hoping, you know, um, I'm hoping that readers – Especially people who are not super familiar with comic shops will say, oh, my goodness, that shop is two hours from where I live. I'm going to go check it out um, because the, the, all of those are businesses that are worth – you know, they're just really good at what they're doing you know, and really, and, and really, really worth checking out. Um, and it's it, – it, the danger though and is that there are some great ones I left out. I mean there are some Eisner winners that I left out. Um, there are – either because I didn't get to them or any other number of reasons, or there just were misconnections in terms of being able to, um, I didn't, I don't believe I cold called anybody in terms of just showing up. Yeah. Um, so, but, um, um, yeah, the list just kept expanding. It ended up at 40. And, uh, if there is a, uh, a paperback version or another edition, I, I, I'm, I already have a few that I'm going to add to that 40. So, um, you got to stop somewhere. You eventually, or eventually, oh, yeah. This of comic shops. Well, they <laughs> say there's 2,000, so, uh, you know, um, you, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to cover. Um, what, um, I mean, how do you, you, you kind of end the history part with, uh, with uh, Steve Jeppy, which I think is very appropriate. We're talking about um, the Diamond, you know, uh, exclusive and how uh, there, there isn't a, um, there isn't a, um, a clause that will allow DC to buy diamond anymore. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, what are you, I, I do think, uh, at New York Comic Con, there was a, a seminar, a talk, you know, the white paper by Milton Greep. And he really said, Oh, we're going through the, the fifth disruption. I might've missed one. Maybe it was the fourth disruption, but I, I think it was the fifth. And, uh, it's pretty huge. I mean, I certainly see that from my, from my viewpoint and we talk about it on the podcast just constantly you know about the shift to graphic novels and how the wednesday warriors are dying off and you know shops some shops are adapting and some shops aren't i mean did you see any of this this disruption and turmoil as, as you were working on the book well it became clear early on that and this is one of the reasons why i mean there i wanted to get this book done and i wanted to publish it because I could see the the market changing right under my feet. I could see stores I was talking to um, were – it was just so – at the beginning of the book, in the reporting of the book, this was during the kind of the convergence and secret wars season when things were heading south. But it also was when um, it, it became clear that a lot of these um, young adult and uh, kind of these scholastic writers like, uh, like uh, Raina Telgemeier and others – had created this, you know, comics were a mainstream product again. Right, it was like right. this crazy, amazing shift. It was like this, this, it, it's a renaissance for, for the, for the medium where if you go to my, my daughter's first grade class and you ask around about comics, they'll list their favorite comics. They'll talk to you about Cleopatra in space and bone. And, and this, this growing awareness that, there's this there's this feeling among a lot of comic shops that that the mainstream or that comics are kind of dying and, and there's been this concern that comics are dying in one way or another for decades. <laughs> yes. But what's clear to me is comics are not dying. Comics are comics are in the midst of this really confusing, difficult, great 
trans transformation and some of the best comic shops are right in the heart of it and are really benefiting from it and then there are a lot of shops that aren't benefiting at all because they just they're not they're just they don't quite understand the market that they're in and how it's changing yeah no that's a really great way to put it i i I do think um i do think again i you know this model of the comic shop is is the history of it is what you cover this book and i mean it goes back 30 years 35 years you know and then the the advent of the direct sales market which was a revolution and you you know i mean we're just scratching the surface of the story i mean i know it doesn't sound that exciting and sexy but if you really if you like comics it is a very interesting story about how fans took over i mean there really has never been an industry or maybe comics were just the first industry where fans became the focus you know and the general audience was was a little bit set aside in well not even a little bit a whole lot set aside in the change to the 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 fan the local comic shops but but now we're seeing you know the the pendulum swung back yeah and and the question is kind of what what does that mean for these kind of the direct market comic shops and it's a really it's a it's a difficult question you know we just we just don't we don't know yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Um, I I see our time is just about up, so I'm going to let you go. I mean, like I said, we've only scratched the surface of talking about, you know, we haven't talked about Carol Kalish, and, you know, we haven't talked about Hal Schuster. It's amazing how many of the key players are actually no longer with us. But um, anyway, the book is called Comic Shop. Uh, again, it's published by uh, Ohio University Press, their Swallow Press book. The author is Dan Garino. And if you want to learn more about how we got to where we are, uh, this is the book for you. So, uh, Dan, thank you so much for taking time to, to talk to us. Yeah, thank you, Heidi. All right. And as always, there'll be more to come. <laughs>